This weekend at Augusta, it's the Masters. And with 50% off a Now Sports membership, you can catch every, 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 and every. Watch all four days of the Masters live with 50% off a Now Sports membership for three months, bringing you all 11 Sky Sports channels. Join in at nowtv.com. 18 plus, streamed via internet. Offer ends 2nd of May. Standard pricing after three months. And welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and we're talking about a really important issue this week. It's one that's had some coverage in the press over the years, but I think is a really, really important thing to talk about. And it's the state pension age for women and how changes that have really disproportionately affected a lot of women and I'm really pleased today I'm joined by Dan Eden. Hi Jan. Hello. And uh, Dina Hunt. Hi Dina. Hi. And also Melanie Mazinga. Hi Melanie. Hi there. And all of you ladies have all been affected in some way by this and you're all part of this campaign called the WASPy campaign. Now It does get a bit complex, this, but I'm going to try and summarise it best I can. And then I'm going to ask Jan to tell us a bit more. Now, this all kind of started in 1995, as far as I'm aware, when the Conservative government's uh, State Pension Act had plans to increase the age for women when they can get their state pension to 65 from 60. And this is in line with men's. Um, And the whole point of this is as I understand it, and you ladies can surely tell me different if I'm wrong, is that the campaign agrees with equalisation, but not the way that it's been done. And this means really that women born in the 50s, 3.8 million of them, have been hit particularly hard by this change and lost that on a lot of money and lack of appropriate notice. I mean, Jan, what else can you tell us about the background? Is, is that kind of a starting point? I think it's a good starting point. I think that the uh, WASPy campaign, there's, there's quite a few different campaigns going on, and this is where it gets confusing. The WASPy campaign aren't asking for the state pension age to be put back to 60, but they really are, the big beef is about the way that the um, changes were implemented because women got absolutely no notice of this change whatsoever. Um, the majority of our, our um, WASPy members um, never got any notice that their pension that of this pension change. Uh, I think when that 95 pension change came in, um, you know, I've got a one-year-old baby. I certainly never got any um, letters or any notification about it. So the WASPy's aim, the WASPy's calling for a fair transitional state pension arrangement for all the women affected. And ultimately that is for a bridging pension between the age of 60 and the new state pension age. Now, WASPy have got a lot of support across all of the political parties, um, individual MPs um, who have been extremely supportive. Um, We're not asking for the pensions age to be reversed back to 60. However, we're very interested in the back to 60 campaign because obviously at the moment um, they they had a, a court case that was heard against them last year 
um, and an appeal in July this year um, was still pending the outcome um, of that. And while that we're waiting for that outcome, then the WASPI ask that's with the Ombudsman can't proceed. So at the moment, we're waiting for the outcome of that. And there's six test cases, um, WASPI cases with the Ombudsman at the moment. Um, thousands and thousands of women wrote in, but they just chose six cases um, as test cases. And the parliamentary Ombudsman, they're looking at, aren't they, whether the DWP basically were wrong in the way that they implemented this? Yes, because basically they said that all women were contacted, that actually that wasn't true. And I think there's an acceptance that that wasn't true. Um, women were not contacted either in 1995 or 2011. Um, women heard through, you know, women heard through the grapevine that this was happening. And it, and it strikes me as very odd that they were unable to contact you about an issue that was as important as that. I've lived at two addresses for the last 30 years. Um, I claimed child benefit at one address. And I continue to claim it at my second address. I've been a taxpayer. Um, they knew where I was. They could have informed me and they didn't. As soon as I got my state pension, because I'm still working, the very next the very next week, my tax code was reduced in order to claim the tax back. So when they want to tell you, they can find ways to um, to tell you. Absolutely, and you know clearly there's a lot of context, and because this has been going on for so long, there's a lot of hurdles that have kind of been reached in twists and turns. I, I'd just like to kind of grasp a bit of what the real life impact of that is really. I mean, let's go to, um, let's go to Melanie first. Can you tell us how this has impacted you, Melanie? Um, but to be honest, I only heard about this when I was 59. I was at a dinner party. Oh, wow. And um, I mentioned that I was due to retire next year. And the person I was talking to said, oh, no, you're lot. You've got to go on to till you're 65 what are you talking about um i ended up looking it up the following day because i i thought it was some sort of weird joke and found out that it was actually true i'd never heard the like um oh, I see. I so that backs up doesn't it what jan was saying there about you know people not finding out that you found out at a dinner party rather than getting an official letter yeah i had no letter at all um, but I mean, the impact is that I've been obviously paying in through tax through through many years, and um, you know, and because for us, particularly women, um, you know, employment has been you know hampered over various periods of life by caring for children mm -hmm. and. Uh, parents and other relatives that I've been in a way that our our brothers have rarely had to do um so our employment yes. has been you know a bit more sporadic say let's say than than men's and men tend to get paid more yeah. and then to suddenly have to work an extra six years um is really difficult and certainly as a woman 
you know, once you hit 50, getting a job is, is um, no laughing matter, really. It, it, there is, you know, I know age discrimination is supposed to be illegal now, but it still exists. Um, There's a big difference, isn't there, between something not meaning to happen and actually in practice it not happening. So, yeah, I'm currently, I have been working more recently um, doing as and when work um, uh, as a lay member of of, um, panels um, looking at health uh, practitioners, Mm -hmm. obviously with the COVID uh, situation, all of that has stopped. And so I haven't got an income now. And I mean, with not being able to get your pension yet, does that, how, how, where does that leave you? Does that leave you kind of claiming benefits? Or I, I, from what I understand, some people aren't able to claim benefits if they're in this situation. Is that, you know, for someone that's worked all their life, I imagine that's quite a scary position. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I haven't tried to claim benefits. So universal credit, I would think, would be the only thing that I would possibly be um, eligible for mm-hmm. but I, I just find it so distressing and and offensive that I should be put in this situation mm-hmm. so I'm just trying to muddle through as best I can I, I sold my house and have bought a place that um, is frankly a ruin so I'm, I'm just trying to sort of cobble that together so hopefully I will have somewhere warm and dry to live in um, if I get to pension age really. And, and to sell the, the selling of your house did you did you kind of have to sell your house because of this if you if you had got your state pension when you expected it would you have been able to stay in your house? Yes. Wow that's a massive change. That's a massive change. Dina can I just Bring you in there and kind of. Um, but I'm sure we can. I'm sure there's plenty more that we'll come back to Melanie for. But can you explain to us a bit about how how the changes have impacted you? Sure. Yeah, I um, found out at age 58 that um, retirement wouldn't be at age 60, but um, it's now at 66. Um, I'd paid in um, for 45 years, worked and paid in for 45 years. Um, the small private pension I had has now gone. Um, I don't have any savings and I have no property to sell. Um, but thankfully, I have a husband who supports me. Um, um, over the six extra years, um, that would have been £52,000 of my money. And, and that's my employers as well, it's, it's worth mentioning. Um, so that's 52000 I'll never see again. I'll never get back. Um, we now know that... Um, the monies were used to pay towards the national debt and the banking crisis. Um, it personally, it makes me angry and upset at the same time um, because it's an injustice that's touching mm. this particular cohort of women. Um, it doesn't, you know, it, it does just affect the 1950s born women. As Dina said, we're very angry um, about this. Absolutely. And that is something I wanted to pick up on, actually, because we were, you know, chatting before we started 
record it. And one of the themes that seems to continue coming up is that maybe this hasn't been taken so seriously because successive ministers have maybe thought this is, you know, just a women's issue that would that would go away. But you're not you're not going away, are you? And uh, I mean, and I mean, how would uh, you know, Dina Mellon, You both told me you've been involved in the campaign for a couple of years. How would you describe? The women in the campaign I think one of the words you used was feisty oh definitely yeah I mean we are portrayed in the press uh, the small bit of attention we do get in the press as unimportant uh, sniveling women standing outside court crying um, just totally misrepresented um, we've had so many campaigns with hundreds of women attending We've stopped the traffic outside Westminster. We've stormed the DWP officers. Uh, an effigy of the pensions minister was set alight um, at Media City in Manchester. The cameras were turned off. The blinds were drawn down. You know, we're not natural rebels, but we're angry and upset. We just want the state pension that we've paid into. Um, and I think one thing that people don't realise is it's not only the state pension we're missing. It's the cold weather payment and the free bus pass and any related things. We don't get them at 60. We have to wait till 66 um, along with the pension. Um, so, yeah, it, we are determined women, but we're being broken down by the lack of uh, reporting on TV and the press. We're stifled. Um, all our attempts, there are journalists there standing next to us with Zoom lens cameras and so on. Um, but none of it, none of it gets onto mainstream TV or into the press on the front pages as it should. I think one of the impacts of of the way that that's it's often presented in the media, you know, that as Dina said, the sort of women um, sniveling outside courtrooms, or you know, is presented as sniveling. People get so frustrated, they burst into tears. But then because of the way that's presented in the media, um, you know, you get people saying to you, um, you know, well, welcome to equality, ladies. It's not equality. We've never had equality. We've, we've, we've been paid less than men since we started work. We've been passed over from promotion in favour of men. Um, we've been expected to care for children and, you know, parents and other family members, whereas men, it's assumed that we will step into that role. And we've done all that. And, and then to have this slap in the face right at the end of our career when, you know, it's, it's, it's our turn actually and it's such an injustice and to call it equality is an outrage really and as Jan said we're not asking to go back to 60 but just treat us fairly I mean I can I can I just come in and, and say that there's at least 40,400 affected women in Leeds and people are having to, I mean, women have lost their homes, as Melanie talked about having to sell her house. Um, women are being forced to stay in violent and destructive relationships because they can't afford to leave. They're juggling like several low paid jobs with caring for 
elderly parents and grandchildren, uh, people who've not claimed anything before. It's like you alluded to, Melanie, about not why should you go and claim something? And they suffered the humiliation of a hostile benefit system. One of our Leeds members was told in order to get a job, she should lose weight and dye her hair. She went home and cried for hours. How insulting is that to women who, this is a woman who's worked all of her life, but going to claim universal credit after a bout of ill health and not being able to work. Um, and women do face age discrimination when they try and get work. Women are going to food banks. Um, and, you know, that people have tried to save a bit for their older age and they've had to spend that money um, just in order to, to survive. Um, so, you know, and this group of women, we're not over 60. You're not economically inactive. They were saying the other day the care system is going to collapse um, because fewer women are having children that are going to look after the elderly, and, and it's specifically women. So we are expected to be the caregivers, of not only of the children, but the family. Um, people have been told, well, your husband will have to keep you. Well, that's not good enough, actually, um, in this uh, 2020. People probably, a lot of women don't have a husband to keep them and don't want to be kept. No, absolutely not. And am I right in thinking also that there are a number of women who have died oh. as well before they managed to get the pension? Well, at least uh, at least this was in, in March this year, and it's bound to be more, but an estimated 90,000 women have died before reaching their pension age. And that pension, you know, the new state pension as well, I think this is worth um, mentioning the new state pension means that that pension just dies with you. Previous to that, if you got a pension and you did have a spouse, your spouse would receive half of that pension going forward on your death. But that, that money, that's gone. So all of those contributions that those women have paid in for all those years, that's just wiped away. And so that's another um, injustice as well. Um, Absolutely. Um, Jan, as I, as I think you told me when we were chatting before that you have got your pension now, but you're clearly still campaigning. Is that is that because it's such an important oh, issue? Is it something that you think you've got to still be involved in? Hugely important. I mean, I, I, I really feel that this is an injustice. And my philosophy is an injustice to one is an injustice to all. So I take on injustice in all its forms. I got my pension last November at the age of 65 and seven months um, and getting my pension, knowing that I was going to get my pension, did enable me to reduce my hours at work. I carry on working. I, I, I do like my job, but actually working full time was, was hard. And then I was told, well, you can get your pension paid four weekly in arrears. I said, I don't want it four weekly in arrears. I want it every week. So I get it paid every week and I don't need it every week at the moment. But there'll come a point when I have to give up my job. I do have a small private pension as well. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, you could say I'm one of the, the lucky ones. I'm not, you know, affected at the moment. But actually, I had 
based my retirement around thinking, well, I can carry on working for a bit. I can like save that money and then that will be a buffer because, you know, you want to you don't want to you want to think that you've got some quality time in retirement. And that money has been, you know, it's been stolen as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, it's been stolen from us and uh, and we are angry. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, let's just speak to you, Andy. I mean, what kind of reception do you get when you, um, I guess, talk about this with people? Are people outside of the campaign aware, do you think? Or do you think there really needs to be more done on getting this into the public consciousness? No, I, I, you know, I talk to people who are, are very sympathetic and do understand what what the injustice is, but a lot of people really don't get it. Um and and yeah, there is that expectation. Well, I don't have a husband, but there's there is that expectation that you know you'll you'll have a, a a chap to look after you, and that's not always the case. And anyway, we've been workers in our own right. Why should we depend on you know? Uh, why should we be dependent on somebody else's pension to look after us when we have paid into the system? No, absolutely. And Dina, is it the same for you? Do people kind of understand when you talk to them? Not not really, no. I mean, there are women um, the same age as myself that still don't know or coming up to 60 and still don't know, still think that they can retire at 60. Um, whereas, you know, for me, born in 1958, um, it'll be um, 2024 for the extra six years. Um but for me, it, we've, we've worked since our teens, um, the majority of women, um, full-time or part-time to fit in around children. Um, I was a single parent and brought up two children, which, because I wanted to work, um, I had to put with childminders and before and after school clubs. Um, we struggled with not very much money. Um, I saw them through university. And the sad thing for me... Um, I mean, as well as the monetary loss, the sad thing is that I miss spending time with them because they've yeah. got good jobs, they've moved yeah. away. Um, because I have to work, I can't take time off to be with them. Um, and it's the same for a lot of other women as well. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, Jan, you were going to say? Uh, I was just going to say in terms of, uh, you know, my my experience is that a lot of people have absolutely no idea, but when you do explain it, people are understanding. And I think really what I hate is this divide and rule that they try and say, you know, we're like the baby boomers and we've had it all and we've had it really good and try and put that wedge between ourselves and younger people. When actually I think that's just a false it, it, it's false, really. I think younger people are quite well aware um, they can see an injustice if it's presented with them. In Leeds, we've got support from um, our uh, local MPs, notably Richard Bergen, who's the MP in East Leeds, get a lot of support. And we've also had support with our WASPI, um, with our local WASPI campaign in Leeds from the City Council. We've met with the uh, leader of the council, Judith Blake and Deborah Cooper, who's the deputy leader. And we have two other councillors, Pauline Graham and Jules Hesselwood, 
who have been really supportive of the group. Uh, we have they have been in touch with the West Yorkshire Transport Authority um, via Councillor Kim Groves to see whether or not um, women could there could be something done in terms of bus passes because people can't even access. You know, they can't some 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 of our group they can't even afford the bus fare to get to a hospital appointment. So I mean, people are really some people are living in absolutely dire circumstances because of this, you know, really on the breadline. But we have had support in Leeds. I mean, their support's great. Um, you know, I'm not going to knock that, but obviously we need um, we need support from the, the, the government, and uh, which is why all WASPI uh, members are being encouraged to contact their MPs because obviously there was quite a few changes um, with the December election. So we keep on, we're keeping on, keeping on. We're not going anywhere. Obviously, I think with the COVID-19 situation, certainly, uh, you know, it would have gone, it's gone down the agenda with Leeds City Council in common with all councils because they've been providing vital support to vulnerable people throughout this pandemic. But I told them about this podcast and um, they were really um, keen for it to go ahead. And, uh, you know, they're still very much on board as uh, some of our local MPs. So, uh, you know, from that point of view, we're lucky in Leeds. Um, it's really interesting, actually, that you mentioned um, coronavirus there, because, Dina, you were saying before it was a bit galling, really, to see all the money that has rightly had to be spent, you know, on the on the pandemic response. But after being told for so many years, there's no money to write this injustice. Can you kind of explain a bit how that felt, I suppose? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, nobody would um, wish uh, money not to be spent on COVID. But I mean, the government's made a real hash of um, using the, the, the money for the wrong things and having to do U-turns everywhere, but it's just billions here and billions there. And there always was that old question of, you know, how how are we going to pay for um, the women's pensions? And that's not the question that should be asked. It should be what happened to the money that the women paid in. Um, mm. and, and the irony is that... Um, at the moment, the youngsters are wanting jobs, and if we were given our pensions, um, they could have the jobs, and we could be free to look after grandchildren, volunteer, maybe even just rest up and enjoy life. Um, it's just wrong. The other thing is, we're alternatively told that we're we're in as a result of our age, we're either in the high risk group or not in the high risk group, depending on which which um, idea that particularly serves at the time. And, you know, if, if we are in a high-risk group because we're older, why not just let us retire, leave the jobs for the young people, let them have those opportunities and, and things. We, as, as Tina said, we're, we're traditionally the people who who volunteer and in the community and do do things like that and and look after grandchildren who enable our children to go to work 
it just is a false economy all the way down the line. I think I think another thing that's worth mentioning um, as well, I maybe should have said this earlier, but actually until the 1990s, many women weren't even allowed to join company pension schemes. They were just debarred from it. People would find that really sort of bizarre, but actually they were. And obviously they had very often women had part-time, low-paid jobs for so-called pin money, which is always an extremely um, annoying um, phrase. But it isn't just about, you know, it is about the money, but it is about a fundamental, the the trust that was broken between the government and ordinary people, you know, not communicating that and then denying it. You know, I mean, I, I think that people need to look and think, well, They've done this to this group of women. What what can they do next? I mean, they could like say they're, they're after like putting the state pension age up and up and up. And actually, um, people aren't living longer. The you know, that's that's sort of going backwards. We're going backwards in terms of life expectancy at the moment. So you know, um, I, I I agree totally with with. Melanie and Dina that, you know, and WASPI have made representations to the government about they they did a consultation amongst the members. And, and I, I actually said the very thing that, that we've said here, let the women retire and keep the jobs open for the younger people, because it's ridiculous that we're having to compete for these jobs. Mm-hmm. So I guess to to kind of round us off and anyone feel free to come in here by all means what what happens next what's the next stage we keep fighting <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so is it, is it that we're just waiting now for that um appeal that you mentioned earlier for the back to 60 group before the parliamentary ombudsman can get underway again with looking into those six test cases is it just a waiting game at the moment it is. It is. I mean, obviously, waiting, but people are still campaigning. People are still being asked to keep this on the agenda, to uh, write to their MPs, contact councillors, uh, you know, keep keep the profile going. But obviously, until that um, judgment is made in probably October, November time this year, um, Basically, the the ombudsman can't make any decision, and then we wait to see what will will happen there. Um, we can only be hopeful. Can I just chip in there? I'd just like to say that it's exactly this kind of thing that we need. We need the press and TV on board. We need to get the message out there. So the more of this kind of thing, Jerry, would be more than gratefully received. Well, absolutely. Yes. All we can do to help, and hopefully, uh, if there's any of my colleagues listening, they'll they'll do the same. So that's obviously something that we will be keeping an eye on in the coming weeks and months, and well, hopefully not years. But 
if you want to get involved, then if you're in Leeds, you can join the Leeds group uh, with Jan and you can get in touch with her by emailing Leeds Waspy Women. Waspy is W-A-S-P-I. So that's Leeds Waspy Women at gmail.com. And you can find them on Facebook as well. If you're outside of Leeds, then make sure that you have a search on Google for your local group or even maybe set one yourself. And you can join the national campaign as well. You can find their website on Google. Now, what I should say is that the issue has been debated a lot in Parliament on a number of occasions, and the changes have been debated a lot over the years as well. And the government's consistent response has been that all these problems were debated when when it's been before Parliament and concessions have been made. And to quote that there will be no further changes to the pension age or pay financial redress in lieu of a pension. Previous governments have also said as recently as you know 2018 that if further changes were made that it would create this inequality between men and women and it would cause younger people to bear a greater share of the cost of the pension system which would be unfair and which would undermine the principle of intergenerational fairness which they say is integral to state pension reforms. Of course, there's been a bit of update on this as well. In March of this year, uh, Pensions Minister Guy Edmund said that the full restitution, so to sort out all these claims, would cost £215 billion. And there was a case before the courts. And he says this, you know, th- this case was lost. And he said that clearly that matter is subject to appeal, but the case was lost in respect of every ground, including notice. So that's the government's position on it. Thank you so much to Jan and Dina and Melanie for coming on. It's a really important issue, which we were really pleased to highlight on the podcast. We're now going to head over to political editor Rob Parsons, who is chatting to Chloe Lavasuch, our York local democracy reporter, about everything going on on her patch this week. So this is the part of the podcast where we move away from Westminster politics to look at what's going on in Yorkshire's towns and cities with the help of our friends from the local democracy reporter service. Two weeks ago, we focused on Leeds, but today we're moving a few miles east to examine what's going on in the historic city of York. It's a place many listeners will have visited as a tourist, but for the 200,000 or so people who call it home, there are a host of issues for the city's Liberal Democrat and Green administration to deal with. So to find out what's happening, I'm joined today by Chloe Lavasuch, who is the local democracy reporter for York. Uh, Chloe, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Rob. Uh, Very nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Not a problem at all. It's nice to have you. So you've you've put together uh, five things that we need to know about uh, politics in the city of York. Uh, And the first one is one that uh, I think is is similar to one that uh, the LDR for Leeds raised a couple of weeks ago, uh, coronavirus and its impact on on the city. What What can you tell us about that? Yes, um, well, the situation in York is quite different to Leeds. The impact actually is not as bad financially for the council as many other places. Um, The city leaders are saying uh, Leeds faces a £200 million uh, shortfall. In York, it's more like £20 to £25 million. But it has exposed some weaknesses in our local economy and the sort of the jobs and the industry that's available for residents. A lot of people will know that York's based mainly on tourism and hospitality. Um, It's a wonderful place to visit. But unfortunately, that does lead to quite a lot of lower paid jobs for the people who live here. 
the job losses initially were sort of predicted at around 17,500, which is obviously hugely worrying for, for both the council and also obviously the people who live here and the businesses. Um, luckily, that's been sort of halved in recent uh, weeks by the LEPTA prediction. But it does mean that the council's plan for recovering from coronavirus has focused more on sort of growing skills and attracting more diverse businesses to the city, which I think uh, sounds like great news for a lot of residents. They're focusing on things like uh, green jobs, jobs in sort of the new emerging bioeconomy and also the rail industry. Obviously, York's got this amazing uh, rail history. So that's going to be the focus for the council here. Um, I think we were talking a few weeks ago about how recovery so well seems to be, so far, sorry, it seems to be going quite well in York over the summer. The car parks have been back up to capacity. You know, a lot more people have been visiting the city, as anyone who has been recently will know. Uh, I think that businesses and uh, traders are a bit worried about what's going to happen when the summer's over and the staycationers go home. So that's the sort of the next issue for uh, the council to tackle in terms of recovery. But uh, so far, economically, that's where we are very different to other sort of northern cities, according to the council leaders. Um, one or two issues raised, obviously, from the healthcare perspective as well. York did have a higher proportion of care home deaths than many other places in the region. Um, and also there's a huge backlog in healthcare in terms of cancelled appointments and cancelled operations. Uh, I think that that would probably be the case the country over, but that's obviously a concern for a lot of residents whose healthcare has been paused and whose uh, checks and operations and uh, routine appointments have been delayed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think... Uh... I suspect that we'll know that York's uh, economy is fully back up and running again when we uh, see the stag do's and hen do's coming back in force. That's one of the, uh, whenever I go to York, it seems like the, the streets are full of people wearing uh, angel wings and L plates and uh, and such like. Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing that exactly. hasn't, quite, uh, hasn't quite come back in the same way. Well, I don't know. The last few weeks when I've been around, there's definitely been quite a lot of uh you know, a, a lot of groups, a lot of families on holiday, but it does also seem like, you know, you seems to be quite a lot of foreign tourists as well. I see them walking around with guidebooks and things like that. So, I mean, that's nice to see a lot of residents um, obviously have worries about the number of stag and hen do's coming to the city, which can sometimes make it not feel like such a family friendly place. But I think that the races also, uh, obviously, the race course hasn't been having big public meetings. They've been behind closed doors. That's made a very big difference to the feel of the city over the summer. We're quite used to sort of uh, Saturdays and weekends, it, you know, the city being full of race goers. Uh, and that has made a big difference, both to the feel and also, I suspect, to the local economy. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And so, on a uh, looking back a few months ago, and it feels like a whole completely different different time. Uh, flood flooding was a big issue in in York, uh, and I, I guess there's a chance that it could could well be again in the coming months. Um, the obviously there's various schemes in place to uh, prevent flooding in 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 future. What what's going on with that? Yes, so uh, there was actually a review carried out uh, by the Environment Agency and the Council into 
how the uh, flood defences, their effectiveness uh, in February of this year. And it does seem that the city coped quite well this year. I mean, the temporary defences, things like sandbags, uh, which were protecting uh, people's homes in areas where they don't currently have uh, permanent defences, they were within 40 centimetres of being overwhelmed. But nonetheless, the city has coped well uh, this year, which is a good sign for things to come. Uh, And as I said, there are major schemes on the way, uh, should be beginning later this year, some of those. Uh, There were a few issues that emerged. Uh, Pictures of York flooded. It's a beautiful city and, um, you know, it makes some quite stunning photos when you see the river in flood. But uh, most of the city centre is not affected by flooding in that way. Uh, And the council and many businesses and indeed residents um, have a feeling that these pictures of the city flooded can put visitors off uh, and obviously they can that can affect business uh, it also affects the council I mean in February we saw that the council lost out on car park revenue because far fewer people were visiting we even had contacts from people saying uh, I've, I've booked a hotel for this weekend to visit is it underwater <laughs> you know um it's a very small area of the city that does get flooded. Nonetheless, it does hugely affect a lot of residents and a lot of businesses. Uh, but, you know, the city is always very much open for business uh, as it was throughout February. Um, so, yeah, we are seeing some pretty major schemes starting later this year. One of the main ones uh, is going to be Clemensthorpe, uh, which will see Terry Avenue, quite a main riverside route throughout the city, closed for 18 months uh it's going to affect quite a lot of residents it's been quite controversial to be honest with you but uh, it is due to protect hundreds of homes and it will be great to see those schemes in place uh you know for the peace of mind for a lot of residents as well yeah absolutely so i mean talking of major schemes when when i when i think of when people conjure up uh, York in their mind's eye, I think they think of, uh, you know, an, a, an historic city in which there's not necessarily a lot of space to build new stuff. But actually, there's this huge site, isn't there, next to the mm-hmm. railway station, York Central, that it is uh, kind of has been the focus of a lot of attention for a while. It, it uh, has what, been what the focus of a lot that? of attention, um, particularly recently uh, in December, the government sort of suggested that they might look to move the House of Lords temporarily to York Central uh, while work is carried out there, which um, obviously sort of very much caught the public imagination and uh, was quite exciting news for the city, I think, and and has continued to be. I mean, uh, only a few days ago, I was reporting that uh, the council leader was saying the cabinet office had carried out a feasibility study into whether uh, the House of Lords or even the House of Commons could... Um, could come to York it could come to York Central unfortunately a few days ago I saw that this uh, these plans have now been rejected by the body in charge of the project certainly there was a lot of opposition uh, if you were listening to any of the House of Lords debates I think at one point York was referred to as Outer Mongolia by Lords <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, didn't that. go down terribly well um, <laughs> I think with, with people from the city us being sort of only a couple of hours from London uh, I don't think it's that that uh, far away, quite not quite as far as out of Mongolia. Um, but like you say, the York Central project is a lot more than just uh, a potential site for government. It's uh, it's a it's a huge site near the station. It has been sort of uh, batted about for development for quite a long time now. But there does seem to be some real progress being made, uh, and a 
very early sort of planning application, what they call an outline application, which very broadly sketches out what the site could be used for has been approved by the council. Uh, There's currently one in for sort of the roads and the bridges that could be built on the site. Um, And government also has committed uh, long-awaited £77 million of funding to the site for that sort of initial work to go ahead. Um, The idea is that it's going to bring sort of 2,500 homes to York and uh, plenty of office space as well. you're right, a lot of people think of us as a small city and, you know, places like the Shambles and the city centre do have these small historic streets. But, you know, we, we all, it's also a city in need of uh, housing, particularly affordable homes. And uh, this could be, you know, a huge and positive addition to the city. Um Yes, so yeah. uh, but currently there's sort of uh, political debates going on about what the economic space could be used for because, of course, coronavirus has changed everything and now we're being told that we could be working from home a lot more. So that is uh, also an issue for the government, uh, the council even to look at. Yeah, absolutely. So there's quite a lot of other positive things to say about what's going on in York at the moment. The community stadium <laughs> is a long running uh, saga. You're what's, right. what's, um, what's the latest I, on that? Unfortunately, I can't tell you how many stories I've done on it being delayed. Um, the latest on the community stadium is that uh, we've been waiting for the test events to go ahead. These are the safety events that have to be carried out to make sure that all the fire escapes and all of that are, are working. But of course, you need quite large crowds to test uh, how quickly a crowd can evacuate. And in times of coronavirus, getting 4,000 people together in um well, in an enclosed space, it's just not going to happen. So at the moment, uh, those are not scheduled to take place. And uh, the community stadium, as close to being ready as it is, just can't open until those safety checks have been done. Um, I mean, on the upside, uh, you know, sort of just 10 days ago, I covered a meeting where plans for new homes to be built on the current stadium at Bootham Crescent uh, were given the go-ahead. So that that development is ready to start, uh, but it is conditional on everything moving to the community stadium. So I'd love to tell you that we have an opening date, but unfortunately, we're going to have to wait a little bit longer. Uh, We did also have a a chat about sort of positive green news in York, because a lot of things have been happening uh, since the council declared a climate emergency. Uh, we do have uh, four green councillors on the council, although, um, you know, I think that the environment has been a prominent issue for all of the major parties in York. Uh, we're talking about things like the, the city will have the first voluntary clean air zone in the country. Uh, it's bidding to become the first electric bus city. We're even getting uh, fully electric bin lorries uh, and low emission bin lorries. Uh, And this week, the council has announced plans for a new forest to be built just outside the or just inside the outer ring road uh, with 50,000 new trees to be built. Uh, Lots of plans for electric vehicle charging hubs. And uh, of course, uh, around Christmas time, there was an announcement that they're looking at banning cars from the city centre. So I think it's fair to say that York is uh, working hard on living up to that climate emergency uh, declaration. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the final uh, topic to, that people might want to know about, uh, obviously York uh, plays a lot on its sort of a Roman 
Roman roots, and I, I gather there's an, an attraction in, in the work to sort of take yes, advantage of that. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that this, um, this sounds quite exciting, especially uh, given coronavirus, uh, to hear that there is uh, still a commitment to build what uh, will apparently become one of the UK's must-see attractions, uh, featuring sights, sounds and smells of Rome in York. I'm not quite sure about the smells. Um, I think the idea, this, this is a project launched by a developer, but also the York Archaeological Trust. And uh, it's sort of to bring a Roman attraction, much like the Jorvik Viking Centre, which I'm sure a lot of us, certainly I did, have had sort of school trips to remember very well as a child. Um, so this is a plan for a new Roman attraction on Rugier Street. It's it's quite near the station for people who, who are visiting York. Um, it's going to involve a two-year archaeological dig before the actual building work takes place. And the um, archaeological archaeological trust are saying that there is uh, enormous potential for quite significant discoveries so I'm very excited to hear what what that might be um, and that it's also the the most significant single Roman excavation ever in York. Uh, the plans have actually been supported by Terry Deary who writes the Her- horrible history books. Uh, I was quite interested to see in his letter he'd said that the era that attracts the most attention from international reading e- international readers is the Roman age. It's clearly a very popular um, time period that ignites the imagination. So this could be something that is really exciting new development in York, uh, hopefully on the way for 2022. So, yeah. Wonderful stuff. Well, Chloe, I, I for one, will be <laughs> taking my children to this uh, Roman attraction when it when when it opens. That sounds very interesting indeed. Uh, thank thank you so much for your time, Chloe. It's a, there's there's clearly a lot going on in in York, and uh, we'll have to come back to you in a few months to see how some of these big issues are progressing. So um, thank you again for your time. That's um, uh, that's all we've got time for, and uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks to focus on another area of Yorkshire and uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and I was also joined today by Rob Parsons, our political editor. This episode was edited by Dave Clay. You can find this podcast on all the normal places you find your podcasts, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. And I would really, really appreciate it if you could take the time to leave us a review, to subscribe and to share uh, so more people can find out about us. And we'll be back next week. Speak to you then. The Masters on Sky Sports now half price for six months. Witness all four unmissable days live from Augusta. It's one of the grand theatres of the sporting world. Oh, what a shot! You couldn't script this for a Hollywood movie. The best place to watch all four days of the Masters live. To join or upgrade and get Sky Sports half price for six months, search Sky Sports Golf. New sports customers only. Standard pricing applies after six months. Further terms apply.